I'm going to read Acts chapter 24, and as I said before, it's on page 933. What's happened is there was a big fuss in Jerusalem, and they couldn't make a trial happen there because everybody was unfair. So they bring the trial to this place called Caesarea. And uh, we're going to talk about what happened at the second trial, this time in a different place. So, Acts chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, and we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly, for I found this man a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded him for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. And so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring arms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make the, an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When this, this Lysias, Lysias, 
the tribune comes down. I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now we're going to uh, pause there for a moment while uh, the children go off to their group and then we'll resume. Right, but let's uh, go back to our little passage and ask ourselves this question. Uh, Before we do, let me stop again because we've got notes to give you before we start. Right, notes distributed, so let's start again. And let me ask you this question. If you're a Christian, what might stop you taking other people into heaven with you? What might... The job of a Christian is to get people into heaven, right? If I understand the Bible correctly, that's what we're here to do. But what might stop us? And I imagine that you could actually come up with a list of different things that we could do to put people off. I've got a long list of ideas that I might have that uh, could be a problem. But here's the new thing that won't be on your list that I want to suggest to you is probably going to be a significant reason why you will not help people to come into heaven with you. This is because we are so worried about how life is unfair. And if you want to be treated fairly, then uh, there's a good chance that uh, we won't be taking too many people into heaven because this is the thing that we're going to be worried about all the time because life is never fair. There's always going to be some way in which we're going to feel unfairly treated and if that's what's bothering us, that's what will be topmost in our minds and it won't be taking other people into heaven that's topmost in our minds. So what I want to do tonight is to turn that round completely when you go home. You'll be expecting unfairness. And seeing that is normal. And while you're expecting unfairness, the big thing you'll be aiming at when life treats you unfairly is evangelism. And the reason I wanted to go home that way, because we've been looking at Acts chapter 24 in that reading, where everything is unfair, I'll show you that, but at the same time, everything is about evangelism. Let me start by looking at everything that is unfair. There's the courtroom, and you can see from verse 1, 
that uh, the Jewish top brass have come up from Jerusalem to accuse Paul, and this time they've got their secret weapon with them. His name is Tertullus. Now that's really interesting because if you know why there's been a fuss in, f in the first place, it's because these Jews were very angry that Paul was mixing with non-Jewish people. And yet here are these Jewish religious leaders bringing along with them a lawyer, but notice the lawyer's got a Roman name because they're going to be in front of a Roman judge and if it's going to be a Roman court then a Roman lawyer is going to help them to win it. So it's okay for them to mix with someone who's non-Jewish. And so they bring Tertullus along. Only he's not any old Roman. He's the best spokesman that they have. Literally the word is not spokesman, it's orator. This guy is good with words. And he uses his words to do three things, if you look at what he says. First, he butters up the governor. Second, he belittles Paul. And then thirdly, he bigs up his own team. Let's go through that one by one. He first butters up the governor. He says... Felix, you are famous for being such a man of peace. As Tertas and there's the buttering up going on, you are such a man of peace. Let me tell you, that's like little Red Riding Hood looking at the wolf and saying, what fantastic eyes you've got. Because Felix was the most barbaric brute you can find. When people were rising up or did anything against Felix that he didn't like, he would be harsh. He would crush them without mercy. Man of peace? I tell you, when Tertullus's Jewish employers heard him say that, uh, they, would have been, they would have been amazed. Uh, because they would never expect to hear uh, Felix and man of peace in the same sentence. He was just the opposite of that. But they're buttering him up, so therefore this is what they've got to say. Then he belittles Paul. There's Paul, and they want to make him look small. How did they do it? Well, first they say, he's a plague. He's a troublemaker. Now I tell you, the last thing a Roman governor like Felix wants to hear is that somebody is a troublemaker. Romans and their governors are out to preserve the peace. The one thing that threatened that peace that they would never want to tolerate is a troublemaker. And so you just simply say, well, this person's a troublemaker, and immediately they know that this is bad news. It's a bit like me saying, well, Rob is a pervert. Immediately people are beginning to move away from him, aren't they? Uh, and, and, you know, he's not going to be telling all his friends in Cornhill tomorrow that uh, uh, the pastor of the church called him a pervert in front of everybody in church on Sunday. He'll keep that quiet. 
You know, you, you just, just putting it out there makes everybody thinking, hmm, this is not uh, such a good person. But he is a pervert. The same way Paul is a plague, which he isn't, because Paul did nothing of that sort. But just putting the word out there makes people think that might be what he's up to. Let me tell you, there are some times when there is smoke without a fire. And these people have just put that uh, accusation out that is completely wrong. He did start a riot once. And they say he's the ringleader of a sect. Now that's clever too, because see, the Jewish religion was the only protected religion in the Roman Empire. You had to either worship the Roman gods, or you could be a Jew. And if you were a Jew, that was okay. Your religion was protected. No one would get at you. Ah, but if you were a sect, that means that you don't have the same protection because you're not really properly one of them. And therefore, what Tertullus is saying to Felix is, you can do whatever you like with them. They're not Jewish. They're a sect. And so he belittles Paul in that way. And the third thing he does is he bigs up his team. He says, Paul was profaning the temple, and this is when the Jewish people had a right to act against someone who did that. Why, it was even known, apparently, that they had killed a Roman and got away with it because he was profaning their temple. So, Tatar says, and we seized him. This is what he was doing, and we seized him. He doesn't actually say it like it is, because seizing him sounds quite nice, doesn't it? Reasonable. Restrained him. You'd only believe that if you weren't there in Acts chapter 21, verse 31, when it actually tells you they were out to try and kill him. Seize him? The very last thing that they were doing, they were trying to tear him apart. And the Roman army had to intervene. But the point that Tertullus wants to make is, we were right to do that. Because he was a temple profaner. And that is what we can do with them. So it's really poisonous, it's charged, it's serious. And it's Paul's turn. What does Paul say? Let's stick him up on the screen and uh, show you that what he says is that they are not right. Now you might say, in verse 10, uh, Paul is trying to get them off his back by saying he's innocent of any of that. But Paul's not actually trying to get himself off the hook what he's trying to do is to establish the fact that he is not a troublemaker because the last thing he wants is other Christians to get the reputation that they are troublemakers. The minute that you give Christians the reputation that they are troublemakers, they can't talk about Jesus anymore. So Paul is really saying these things, not, as it were, to get everybody sweet with him and get him out of trouble, but he's doing this because he wants the gospel to be spoken about with our Christians 
having a bad reputation. And so therefore, he's thinking of Christians as he begins to explain one by one that what Tertullus said was not true. Of course, he has to start by talking to Felix. He is, after all, the governor who is in charge of the court. But this time, there's no buttering up. You will notice. All he says is, Felix, you got experience dealing with cases like this. You have experience in dealing with the Jewish people. Now, that's actually quite clever, too, because what he's doing is reminding Felix, look, you look back on all your experience in dealing with Jewish people, you're normally finding them wrong, aren't you? He doesn't call him a man of peace because he knows how Felix dealt with the wrong. But he's reminding Felix that generally, whenever the Jewish people have come up for help, they're usually the ones in the wrong. And so he goes through the charges. And he goes through them one by one. He says, troublemaker? No chance. Literally no chance. Look, it was less than 12 days ago when I arrived. So how can I be doing all this that they say I'm doing? No chance. No chance, no motive. Look, I came here to worship. That was the reason why I arrived, not to cause trouble. And when I came, he says uh, in verse 17, I was bringing money to the Jewish people. So I'm here not to uh, upset any of them. I'm here to help them. And when they found me in verse 18, I was purified. I wasn't profaning, I was purified. I was exactly doing what the temple was there to help me to do, not going against it in any way. No chance, no motive, no witnesses. He says in verse 19, it'd be nice to see some of those witnesses here if there were any. Or at least in verse 20, if they're not here, give us some evidence. Now, there's no witnesses, there's no evidence, and there's no truth in saying that this is a little sideshow, a sect. Because he puts it so brilliantly, uh, John Stott, who's a good Bible teacher, wrote this bit and he said that he has the same, he worships the same God in verse 14, the God of our fathers, with the same truths, the law and the prophets, with the same shared hope in verse 15, which is the resurrection, and with the same ambition in verse 16, which is to lead a life that um, uh, has a clear conscience. In other words, he is absolutely mainstream is not out uh, in uh, a different little uh, group that's weird. And the one thing that he stressed again and again was the resurrection. The reason why I'm here in front of you is not because of me, but because of my message, and my message is the resurrection, the future life that I want 
everyone to have with Jesus. That is the one reason I'm in front of people why they didn't like me in Jerusalem, why they don't like me now. Because this is what I'm most passionate about more than anything else. Now you see, when you replay all that, I've condensed it, haven't I? But if you replay all that, what you're looking at Paul and seeing is not a person who is sounding like a defendant. He's not sounding like the accused, trying to you know, get himself back into everybody's good books again. He's not sounding like the accused, he's sounding like an evangelist. And it's not a fair trial, but the outcome he wants out of that trial is to link Christians not with rebellion, but with resurrection. That's what he's after. And it doesn't bring any fairness. It just brings evangelism to him. The court doesn't end with everything ending up nice and fair. See how it ends in verse 22. In a way, Felix becomes Pontius Pilate, if you know the story about Jesus, because he understands that Paul is innocent. That's why he's saying you can, you can have a, a, a place, you can, you'd be kept in custody, but all your friends can come. You've got masses of freedom because he knows he's not a criminal. But at the same time, like Pontius Pilate, he's trying to keep the Jews happy. And verse 27 shows that actually that's what he's after most of all. Right at the end, last verse. Wants to do a Jew, the Jews, a favor. So Paul is in prison for that reason. Plus, of course, he wants his backhander, doesn't he? In verse 26, he'd like a bit of money, Paul. A bit of uh, cash might change my mind. So Paul's he's hoping for a bribe. And so therefore, none of it is fair the way Paul is treated, even after the trial. But what he is worried about is not that everything is unfair, but that everything is about evangelism. And you find that out in this little private session that he has with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. You notice, so when they meet and they talk, he's not moaning about the fact that they're not treating him fairly, they should be letting him go, but they're not. He's not complaining about his house arrest. No, what he wants to speak to them is about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment of God. Because if what matters most is resurrection, then you've got to be talking to people about these things to help them to see that the future is coming and therefore these are the areas of life we need to be thinking about. And all these topics show that they, he cares more about them than he does about his own freedom. Because let me tell you, talking to these two about those three topics is massively dangerous. I mean, fancy talking to Felix about righteousness. I mean, even in this chapter, he's after money to make justice happen 
and to let Paul go. Or his wanting to side with the Jewish people. He's meant to be a fair judge. And no way are these things righteous things for a fair judge to do. And that's just in this court case. Let alone the rest of it where he's been throwing his weight around and squashing absolutely everybody that came up against him. Now, he's not a righteous man. But Paul is going to talk to him about righteousness. And that's gutsy. As is talking to him about self-control. Because Drusilla's there. You know about Drusilla? She was 16, married to somebody else when Felix decided he wanted her. So he got a sorcerer and got her out of that marriage, lured her away from her husband, and now he's with her, and she happens to be his third wife. Fancy talking to a man like that about self-control. And he also wants to talk to him about coming judgment. To tell Felix, in other words, that yes, he is judge of this court, but he is going to be in the dock of the most important, serious court of all when God comes in judgment. And he will be the one on trial. Important people don't want to understand that one day they themselves will be in the presence of someone who will judge them. So no wonder at the end of that pause pushed away in verse 25. He's pushing the gospel home and it's too close to home. And so Felix is alarmed. And yet there's something in him, isn't there, that still wants to find out. And so verse 24 tells us that he keeps calling him to speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Why is faith in Christ Jesus attractive? Because he's the one who can give you the righteousness that you and I just don't have. Because none of us are righteous people any more than Felix was. He's the one who can give you self-control without which our lives just lose their shape. He's the one who can rescue us from God's coming judgments. On that day, we can be secure that God will punish every wrong and draw us to himself with an amazing well done because in the end, he's the one who makes the decisions, no one else. So, what might that mean for us tonight? But it could be that you're someone who's not a Christian and maybe you're a bit like Felix, if you like, wanting to hear someone speak about faith in Christ Jesus and something about you is interested in that. But maybe what's stopping you is a bit like what stopped Felix and Drusilla. And that is that there could be a measure of immorality or worry about what other people think 
the way Felix did. And so I put on your notes and I'll throw the picture up on the screen. Uh, something Jesus said about being a pearl merchant. In, Acts, in uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 45, he said, look, here's this person. He's a pearl merchant. And he sells all the little pearls to get the one big pearl of a resurrection life with the righteousness of God and the self-control of God and the security of uh, the coming judgment of God, security and safety in the coming judgment of God. He wanted that pearl a great price, so he, he gets rid of all the other little pearls that might otherwise uh, stop him from getting it. And Felix, unfortunately, where he wanted to stay with the little pearls, with his life as he had it, immoral as it was, and he wasn't going to give up his sexual immorality or give up wanting favors of other people. He didn't want to give any of the little pearls up to have the one pearl that cuts, which is resurrection and the kingdom of Jesus. And I want to plead with you, if you're not someone who's yet Christian, please don't hang on to the little pearls and lose the big one. Do it the other way around. Give up the little pearls. Grab the one that matters. The resurrection and the life and the future that Jesus gives. Maybe you've been around church. And the people in verse 1 were all churchy people. But the interesting thing about them is that they looked at Paul and they said, well, him and those followers of the way, well, they're just a sect, aren't they? A bunch of weirdos. Small little group of silly people. And let me tell you, people do say that about Christians, and the people that say that about Christians are, if you like, the established church. Let me tell you what's going on right now in Essex near Colchester is a church school. In the church school is, a is a, an eight-year-old boy who wants to change from being a boy to a girl. And the vicar, who is a man who understands the Apostle Paul and teaches the Apostle Paul in these areas, looked at what they were trying to do in the school, especially the way they were trying to keep it from the boy's parents, and said, this is not right. Now, it's a Church of England school, and you'd expect, therefore, the Church of England diocese to come on the vicar's side and say, he's absolutely right, this shouldn't be happening. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? You know what they do? They said, well, what this vicar believes and the people who are like him, well, they just kind of, they're a sect. Uh, they're just oddballs. They, they, they have this particular view of the Bible, but, but really, these days, this is how it is and this is how we should go. And so, the major church treats people who treat the Bible as a sect, as a funny lot of oddballs. And that's how you're treated by the main denomination in this country if you hold on to the Bible and side with the Apostle Paul. He's a ringleader of that 
group of people. And sadly, that's what happened in Acts chapter 24 and happens today. But what happens if you're a real Christian and, as I said before, real Christians are wanting to take everybody they can into heaven. Can't be a real Christian if that's not what you're majorly driving towards in your life. But what's the message for us tonight? And the message is this. Expect unfairness because if in the end you're going to spend your life campaigning against unfairness that is coming your way you will spend your life doing nothing but because life is unfair now look don't get me wrong if you ex experience un unfairness and there is something you can do about it then do something about it. So, if I go home and there's a burglar in my house, I will call the police, okay, to address the unfairness. If I've had a burglary. But the reality is that you call the police and instead of getting justice, you just get a crime number. Uh, what do I then do with that? keep whinging on about how it's not fair that people are doing these things and getting away with it? No. My prime driver is evangelism. That is, my main concern is not to get justice, but to want the people who are unjust and unfair to be in heaven with me. That is my major passion. So, campaign for justice where the law is there to serve you justice, and it's right that we look there for it. And certainly campaign for fairness for other people. That's exactly what good men like... Uh, um, uh, who's the person who campaigned against slavery? William Wilberforce, yeah. Uh, campaigning for uh, fairness for others, yeah. That's a good thing to do. But where we experience unfairness ourselves, we'll experience in many ways that can't be fixed because actually that is life. And we need to take it as the norm and to understand that the big driver is not fairness, but evangelism. And the largest unfairness in this chapter, I think, is that after all the effort to evangelism, Paul still got, got nowhere. After doing his best to help people to take seriously righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment, Paul has to spend another two years in prison. Here's the great apostle who's been around Asia Minor helping other churches, other people to become Christians, and now he can't go anywhere. He's stuck in Caesarea and he's stuck there for two years and he's not doing anything in the process. That is massively unfair that you should treat him like that. But he's not complaining about unfairness. He's in prison waiting for the next evangelistic opportunity which will come next week.
I'm going to uh, try and do next week chapters 25 and 26. So I won't read them all in one setting. You try and read it between now and next Sunday, chapters 25 and 26. But for tonight, expect unfairness. But aim at evangelism. So those who are unfair come into heaven with you and make that the bigger concern. Let me stop there. I will pray. Well, I will first give you a minute. You can pray. Ask God to help you. And then I'll pray. And then we'll have some questions. First, a minute to quiet. Well, our minute is up, so let me pray. Our Father, we do want to thank you for putting in front of us a chapter where there are these two things that are so different from each other. There's evangelism, uh, there's uh, unfairness everywhere. And Lord, we know that as we sit here, there will be some who are smarting under the unfair way that they've been treated. And if it didn't happen, if it didn't happen last week and already, Lord, we know that next week may start by someone being massively unfair to us. We thank you that your word prepares us how to handle these regular knocks that we have in our lives. And we pray that you would give us the massive freedom of not trying to claw back fairness as much as we can, but to have open-hearted love to the people who are unfair towards us in the way that Paul was towards Felix. And help us, Lord, to want nothing but the resurrection for them and therefore to be more concerned about them than us and to speak honestly and courageously about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Please help us, Father, to be clear and to have this one ambition that because of the resurrection we don't worry about fairness or unfairness now but just that your safety will be experienced by everyone we know. Give us, we pray, that desire and grow us in these things. As we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.